Welcome to the Soak by Slash podcast with me, Mikko Mantila. On this podcast, we unpack the first principles of building generational technology companies by diving deep into timeless, hard-won lessons with some of the most iconic founders and investors out there. Today, you get to listen to one of the most pleasant Irish accents because I'm joined by Des Trainer, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Intercom. Intercom is a customer communications platform from conversion to engagement and through support. Des co-founded Intercom in 2011 and over the past decade has helped propel the business into the billion dollar company it is today. Along the way, they've signed more than 25,000 customers, scaled to over a thousand employees, and raised over 200 million euros from investors like Social Capital, Bessemer, Iconic, Liner, and GV. On today's episode, you can expect plenty of nuts and bolts advice, especially on problem selection and iteration, various aspects of product, and scaling organizations, in particular product organizations. Let's go to the episode. Des, so great to have you with us here. It's it's too long since you've been on a slush stage, either either virtual or, or physical. So great to have you with us today. I'm thrilled to be uh, on the podcast too. I listen to it. I'm a big fan. Fantastic. So let's dive right in. And, and I wanted to start with going back to something I've heard you talk about previously, which is about how you choose and validate problems to solve as a startup. And you previously given a sort of a three-part framework to this. So startups should look out for three things. You know, we ourselves have this problem. We are not unique. A number of other people have this problem too. And this is a big problem, which is basically measured by people are willing to pay money to make this problem go away. So a few mm-hmm. questions on that. The first one of which is like, whether or not you personally have this problem doesn't obviously correlate with the size of the problem you're solving for. So why is it still important to solve for something that you yourself face? Efficiency is the short answer. If you yourself don't know what it is you're trying to do, you're going to always have to second guess yourself and go and like run it past somebody who actually does have the problem. And I think like it's going to be massively less efficient. Now, if it is the case that you have no problems or you care a lot about a problem that you yourself don't have, you can definitely like get around it. But just in general, I would say you're far more likely to be successful in something you deeply understand. So you either grow that understanding by like immersing yourself in the world of that problem, or you have already experienced yourself in your previous company or when you were last moving home or whatever the problem is. Makes a lot of sense. And then let's talk about Intercom specifically. And I want to know if part two and part three of that framework was basically others share the problem we have, and that problem is sufficiently big for them to pay for it. So I want to hear at Intercom, how did you concretely validate that both of those things were were true? In our previous product, it's called Exceptional. I was like writing this weekly blog where I'd profile customers and talk to them when we were running customer surveys and stuff. And generally speaking, the, um, the engagement was always just low with the material we were putting out. One day we pushed a message inside the product and the engagement was really high and we're like, wow, that's impressive. And then like, I think we were working with a lot of startups at the time and everyone seemed to have some version of this hodgepodge workflow, which is how do you talk to your customers? Well, you go and find out who they are. That's usually a database inside your product. You pull all that information out, you import it into an email to like campaign monitor or MailChimp or whatever. If you want to make sure you're just talking to paying customers, to go and sync all that against the third data. And it was just a mess. And, uh, and like, there was no tool that solved it, that problem. So what we what we couldn't help but notice was like, we weren't alone in the sense of wanting to talk to our customers. And then the workflow itself of like actually doing it was both expensive in the sense of time and investment to actually use these two or three other tools and just, you know, do all the import export nonsense. So basically it did fit the criteria of we had the problem. We'd seen other people try and solve the problem and the solution that they were currently going for was expensive and messy. So it felt like something where we we could thread many needles and have an actual solution that would work. And how about the, the part where you validated that people are actually willing to pay a certain amount of money for, for that problem to go away? When did you know that that is true? 
Yeah, so uh, on that piece, I would just say, so I'll answer that directly in a second, but just payment can take many forms, like investing a shitload of time to try and do something is also a form of payment. I think the, that guidance of like, are people actually investing in solving the problem? It's really, a, it tests the actual magnitude of the problem in a sense. So in, in the case of Intercom, it was clearly a problem people were willing to invest a lot of time. And of course, little bits of payment into subscription tools like your MailChimp or whatever to actually do this. Uh, so like there was clearly some evidence there, but all of that is still somewhat special speculative. We launched Intercom pricing, I think somewhere like July, 2012. Back then the world was still used to like $9 price plans or like if it was premium, it might've been $29 a month. And that was about as big a number as people could stomach. And Jason Fried was advising us at the time. He's the CEO of Basecamp. And when we presented uh, him kind of like, here's what we're thinking in a sort of like classic Jason Fried moment, his advice was that all sounds really complicated. Why don't you just charge 50 bucks? <laughs> and uh, so when we came out with 50, I felt we were basically putting down one statement which was like, we think that having a unified communications tool for internet businesses to talk to their customers is worth money. Uh, $50 a month is our price. And I think that was probably the right decision. I can give you loads of reasons why that didn't work out perfectly. Like in general, if your pricing had better expansion baked in at the start, our revenue would have looked even better and IBM wouldn't have been paying $50. But the simplicity of saying, here's the beta price, it's $50. And we were specific that this isn't the final pricing, mm. but it was the first wave of pricing to help us work out who's for real and who's not. It was a really good dividing line between real businesses and like side projects or whatever. And once we started charging, the feedback got a lot more focused because once you start charging money, people start looking for value. And the one liner I had on this, which I think is still roughly true, is free users want your product to be bigger and paid users want your product to be better. And I think in general, you want the feedback that has you deliver a better product for a premium price. So was that an overnight, like you sent everyone an email. Now, if you want to continue using Intercom, it's going to be $50. Or did you have a transition period? Did you keep on to a freemium tier of the product? Um, like, how did you do that transition concretely? So we we introduced this beta, and I believe at the time you could keep using Intercom uh, to see who's using your product and that type of thing. But if you wanted to send messages to your customers, we were going to charge you $50. And there was a transition period. I don't remember how long it was. It was probably a couple of months or something like that, during which everyone could roll over. And I think we also offered coupons if people wanted to like upgrade earlier, switch to paid earlier. We had like incentives there as well. But uh, yeah, that was how it all rolled out. Okay, super interesting. And and last question on pricing. If we abstract away from Intercom and mm-hmm. let's say you had a similar sort of pay by usage or pay by user B2B product that you had to price for the first time now, how would mm-hmm. you go about that? Is there a framework that B2B startups can use to determine both the logic and the specific price point of their product? I think you have to put a price on the magnitude of the differentiated value that the customer gets. So it's a few words in there that matter. Magnitude, meaning like somebody who gets lots of value should pay more than somebody who gets a tiny bit of value. And differentiated, meaning don't charge for stuff that people can get for free elsewhere, or people can get identical functionality elsewhere. Because if they can get it identically elsewhere, you have no pricing power. You basically have to adopt that other company's pricing model, assuming they're like established and like well-known. So you have to find the areas where you are actually genuinely like delivering differentiated value to customers. And that's where you want to try and monetize. And then you want some spectrum of magnitude. Like let's say it's like a hate RIS system, like you're going to kill work day or something like that. It's fair to assume that like Coca-Cola has more employees than like slush. So Coca-Cola should probably pay more than slush. Generally speaking, it's rare in the simple early days you go wrong. So if you and me start a project management tool tomorrow, we're probably going to charge by projects or by people. You know, there's a very small number of variables and honestly, any of them work. Uh, you can definitely do things like feature tiering. Like, so maybe big companies need like security and small companies don't or whatever. Like you can do stuff like that. Mm. But I think it gets complicated 
complicated in like year three, four, five, six, seven, when you start really expanding. So let's say our project management company, let's say we had time tracking. Well, what happens now is we have a product that's not quite standalone, but certainly an add-on that wasn't essential to our success. And not all of our customers want it, but some of them do. Now, how do we charge the people who are getting that value for it and not charge the other people? Well, then you have a choice. You have an add-on structure or you can go into plans and some plans have access to extra features and some plans don't. Whichever way you go from now, you're immediately inheriting an extra wave of complexity because everyone else used to be on plan A. Now there's like plan A or plan B and A and or B or something like that. It's even more complicated if you have a different product where people can adopt it in isolation and they don't have to go and buy your project management software. So let's say you also add a document collaboration tool, but it's standalone valuable. Now you need a price plan for that, but then you need still need your original project management thing plus your time tracking add-on. And then you probably want to have some sort of bundle of discount for when it all goes together. You know, this is when it actually starts to get messy and, and complicated. And like, if you keep pulling this thread, let's say, for example, you're at this project management solution for a decade and you've added like five or six more products to the lineup, you're calling the whole thing a platform. What, what you'll find is like larger companies will come along and they'll be like, we really want to evaluate all the software you have and we want to make a conscious decision about what bits we should buy and what bits we shouldn't. Mm. And because we've got like a thousand employees, no matter what way we go, this is going to be expensive. So it's a considered purchase on our side. Enter sales. And like, I think a lot of B2B founders initially start off with a little bit of a skeptical view of sales. They think um, everything should be self-serve and will reluctantly add on one person in a fancy suit with hair gel who can go and, and like charge big money whenever like the big companies come knocking. But actually assistance in solution design and solution pricing is really how I think of it. Your product becomes capable of doing a lot of things and businesses will come to you saying, we think you can solve our problem. The salesperson's job is really to both identify the actual shape of the problem and thus the shape of the solution you sell. Price that solution, make sure the price is aligned to the value that the person's getting. Possibly run a pilot and make sure that they can viscerally see the value they're getting. And then like close the deal, hand it over to a relationship manager whose job is to then make sure that that company stays with you for like years and years onwards. I think what sounds like a simple, we should have pro and premium. There's like a butterfly effect that's caused by such a simple decision like that. Eventually you will need sales teams to help you explain it. There are a few exceptions, but they are literally a few. Like you could say, what about Atlassian? Atlassian being an example of a predominantly self-serve product that's at like, I think, 2 billion in revenue. And I would say, right, but like name me like 10 more Atlassians and you will struggle. All right. Well, let's switch gears then. And and, and something that I found really fascinating in, in reading and listening through sort of stuff you've, you've you've done before is you've sort of almost notably taken issue with the with the lean startup approach, right? Eric Ries claiming that the sort of only thing that companies should optimize for in the early days is, is basically pace of learning and that that learning happens faster the quicker you get an MVP in front of potential customers and, you know, subsequently iterate on it. So what part of uh, Lean Startup do you agree with and what do you not agree with? I measure like the, the pointiness of an idea or the specificity of an idea, but basically would anyone argue the opposite and is the opposite of a valid point. Uh, and I think like, in, so a lot of the time when I get into lean, I, I, I don't really see a lot that like anyone would disagree with. Like we should move fast. I don't know a single company on earth who says something otherwise. Or you get things like, you know, you should talk to your users. Again, I just don't know a single business that doesn't think similar. The stuff I agree with is like where, where I think they took a, a stronger stance was like, get out of the building and talk to your users 
and all of that sort of stuff and like listen and, and iterate based on feedback. I think that's smart. The piece I don't like is this idea of throw shit at a wall and see what sticks. And I think it's going back to our very first topic on the podcast, which is like, if you don't really firsthand understand the problem yourself, you will end up like running around and trying to find target users. But even a conversation you have with them, it's never rich enough because it's all full of espoused behavior. It's like, would you use this? Could you imagine a world where you would use this? It's not like, will you use this right now? It costs $19, you know? Mm. And I think oftentimes I have seen, and I've even invested in companies that have driven off a cliff chasing hypothetical customers. And they will show you all the research they've done, all the customers they've spoken to, but it's all hypothetical until somebody can actually use your product. And I think the danger with the, like the research you do in the lean, like just running around talking to people and like hearing what they say and taking that as gospel is that you're chasing this fictitious behavior that isn't actually like weaponizable. So I think it can lean a bit heavy on the idea that customers can predict their own behavior when I just don't think that that's true a lot of the time. Very interesting. And and at Intercom, you actually ended up taking a, a I think, a, an approach early on that is is directly in contradiction with, with Lean Startups. You actually built a significant amount of software before you launched your MVP. So I want to hear two things about that. Like, why did you end up doing that? And how did you ensure that you were moving as fast as you possibly could since you had such a long road before you actually got to some level of external accountability? So the first, the first piece is easier because the second piece I'm going to fall into all sorts of truisms, which does make for a good podcast. So <laughs> on the first piece, I would say there's a minimum threshold you have to cross for a product to be worth adopting. Like, you know, like when you go to your local restaurant and they're like, please install our app on your phone. And you're like, no, like why on earth would I install a restaurant app on my phone? And this is again, a sort of somewhat fallacy of lean is that like it has to be do enough to be worth adopting. Now, the second piece I'll say is generally speaking, any given product has to be one of two things, a step in everyone's workflow or all the steps in a given workflow. So if you take something like, say, Loom, right, the, mm-hmm. this type of screencasty software, Loom is a step in lots of workflows, right? But it's not like an end-to-end solution for anything. Loom is not a webinar platform, nor is it an end-to-end customer feedback platform, right? That's your best bet, in my opinion, about getting a sort of smaller like MVP type thing out the door. With Intercom, we chose to do all of the steps in a few workflows. If you want to talk to your customers, what can we do? We can show your customers. You can pick the ones you want to talk to. You can say what you want to say. You can let them write back. You can engage them in conversation. You can manage those conversations and you can conclude your workflow. That's just necessarily a lot of software. And similarly, if you want to engage your users and get them to use a new feature, it's find out who hasn't used that feature. Send them a message. See if they used it afterwards. See who still hasn't used it. Message them again. It's all the steps in the workflow. So it's a complete solution. To the second piece, given that we definitely knew that we wanted to, at the very least, message customers and let them talk back and see your customers. That was a large amount of work to begin with. And we were four of us and we broke our week up into 10 portions, like before lunch and after lunch every day. And uh, and we just worked really, really hard at, at like making things happen. So like mm-hmm. yesterday, you can only see your users. Today, you can see them and you can filter them. The next day, you can see filter and message. We didn't measure speed or like lines of code or like user stories or anything like that. It was just like the early days of a startup, you, know, you basically work absolutely as hard as you can because if you don't, your company dies and then it turned out you've wasted like a long time. So that's what we were doing. We were working as hard as we possibly could. It was just kind of whatever it took, like, you know, it was like, you didn't really think about it as a, as a choice any other way. We knew that like if Intercom could work, it'd be great. And we really wanted that to happen. So we went for it. And if that is a relatively simple formula for maximizing the pace at which you ship product, like just work as hard as you can with, with your three co-founders, I'm sure today the equation that determines the pace at which you ship stuff is much more complex, right? There are tens or hundreds of people working on these things. It gets into all of these things like organizational design of, of EPD or like culture or system 
rhythms or alignment. So today, how do you know that you're moving as fast as you can, considering the, that the equation is so complex? You, you definitely never know. Generally speaking, we uh, we rely on good people, uh, good management. We have like a pretty strong prioritization process that like the teams create their own roadmaps. They set their own schedule. We just weigh them in a sense and say for like a team of eight people, like does that feel like a reasonable amount of work to get done? Beyond that, like we certainly don't measure things like lines of code or any of that sort of stuff. Like, and I don't think anyone does in this day and age. Like I think generally speaking, measuring of EPD, as you call it in Europe or R&D as it's called elsewhere, it's like, it's a bit of a faux science. It's probably accurate at either end. I mean, like people who are doing nothing, any form will probably spit out that they're doing nothing. And people who are like absolutely kicking ass will probably shine no matter what the metric. I think everything in between is an impure science. It's mostly there to get consultants paid or whatever. I think anyone who professes to have much more science than that, they're either trying to sell you something or they're like just trying to be a guest in your podcast for a fictitious topic. All right. Let's spend some more time talking about organizational design. Um, so the first one uh, that I wanted to ask about is, is you previously said that whenever you as a founder are forced to make a decision or kind of repeatedly provide similar context, it's a sign that a, a principle is missing in the organization. So can you expand on that? Specifically, can you explain what the necessary steps are between like, I get asked this all the time or I had to make a decision and I never have to weigh on in on this topic again? Yeah, okay. Uh, I just I'd correct the sort of uh, initial, like it's if, if I have to repeatedly make a type of decision, if you make a one-off decision, that's fine. Like uh, that okay. can be uh, random. But when you find yourself running the same calculus in your head over and over again on behalf of somebody else to come to a conclusion you need to be able to give them that calculus and say like hey when this then that type of thing right so like if someone says hey like we could ship this new feature or we could fix these 20 bugs i, I kind of like maybe a few years ago i would look at the bug list and i'm like did it to do and what i'm doing in my head is trying to work out how bad does that sound by like reading the text string is it like you tried to log in and the product just died or is it like does a typo on a label or whatever so i i have in my head some mental model of like user impact as in how shit an experience is this for the user and ultimately for mm -hmm. the brand of intercom i also have like how common an occurrence is this so is this happening for everyone or just a few people depending on the nature of the bug i might also be like does this typically affect big customers or small customers or all customers and the reason i care about that is actually because i care about revenue and i care about the revenue that's affected by this bug so i kind of like give people a brain dump of like here's what i'm looking for when i try to decide new feature versus bug list and our, our own teams will push back and prod and be like why are you asking this and why do you care about that and then over time we actually came up with like in this example we came up with like a health score sense right which is like and it factors in not just the stuff i i said but like the stuff a lot of the team have identified before as in like an example might be how much does the presence of this book a real future technical development in this area you know that type of stuff right and we just we throw it all in and now we can size bugs and then we can size bugs and say like that's like a you know category red or like it's a p0 or it's a top issue mm. or whatever and then we can have a rule around that which is like well rule one might be like we never have any like top level issues we never have any red p0 issues and rule two might be we should always be you know, monotonically decreasing the amount of second class problems or whatever, you know, and rule three might be like, we are reasonably tolerant of stuff that's like low impact and doesn't affect a lot of people. And it's quite forgivable and easy to work around. That's an example of like, what might be something that you would have to be forced to make a quarter to quarter decision on is in, Hey, are we working on quality this quarter? Or are we going to, you know, you can actually unroll your thinking a little bit and get it into a more structured sense. And then the principle becomes like, we prioritize quality as defined by this metric for this type of thing over new product development. But our desire is always to 
maximize new product development or something like that, right? Later on, you'll come to edge cases and times when that thinking failed you. And that's fine too. Like it's okay if it's right most of the time. It makes a lot of sense. And then let's go from principles to the very concrete part of scaling where you're adding headcount. So I wouldn't hear like, as you scale from your original set of four founders to what Intercom is now more than a thousand person organization, what are the pitfalls to avoid or principles to follow? I think the single thing that's most important is to have a really clear mission and vision for what it is you're trying to build. I, think I could be all day explaining the reasons that that helps. It helps you hire, it helps you engage, it helps you retain, and it helps you focus, prioritize. Often as you scale, what happens is you hire a lot of people. And we, we've definitely had years where like we've like doubled or trebled in size. And if you do this wrong, you end up in a world where the people who know what it is we're trying to do are in the absolute minority. So I think um, making sure that the mission and vision are universally understood. And ideally, you've put enough work into articulating the mission and vision so that somebody on day two should be like 80 or 90 percent as understanding of it as somebody on day 202. Right. I think a lot of companies and cultures pride themselves on how long it takes to get ramped and like, oh, you want you're a rookie until you've been here for like three years or whatever. I think that's a really bad idea. Like, I just think you should really focus on how quickly can you go from being fresh in the door to feeling like a, a, a tried and tested intercom person. You really want to minimize that time because that's what lets you hire fast because you're not then having this, what I would call this like organizational amnesia where like most people still don't know what the hell we're trying to do. So I think that's the first thing I'd say is really have clear thinking on your mission and your vision and why you exist. Intercom exists to make internet business personal. Stripe exists to increase the GDP of the internet. We have like internal docs that explain everything from like the evolution of the printing press and why that mattered right up to the evolution of messaging and why intercom fits in this world. And, and we really do our best to try and get everyone up to speed with how we think about that. The second piece I would say to focus on as you scale is onboarding itself. Make sure that the experience of a new person walking in the door is truly world-class. And we fall short of this all the time, by the way, by our own standards. But if you can get people onto the same page and starting in your company is a really great experience, what that means is you have a really positively engaged group of people with a real clear idea of what they want to do. If you get that far, I don't want to say the rest looks after itself. It absolutely doesn't. But most of the time when I look look into like, say, other companies that I've advised or invested in or whatever, it's one of those two things they've gotten wrong. So if there was one area I, I'd encourage every startup to focus on as they're going through hyperscaling, specifically wouldn't be like allocate the tools and techs and make sure you've got a good mix of front end and back end and think about design and the ratio of design to research or to engineer. Like all that's important, but you'll have the time to figure all that out if you have a really happy, engaged, aligned workforce for focusing on the mission and the vision. Okay. And uh, and last question. So you now have uh, 10 years under your belt building one of, I think, the uh, uh, one of the more iconic startups in the, in the world. So what's an important truth about company building that very few people would agree with you on? I have a few. One is hard problems are often easier than easy problems. And that's something that people will find counterintuitive. If I say we're going to build Messenger 6, the sixth release of the intercom messenger touched by billions, uh, it's going to change how the internet communicates and all that sort of stuff. You'll have a line of every principal designer, engineer, PM wanting to be involved in that project. The literal best people will want to be all over it and they'll fight to get involved and they'll want to make it their like the showpiece of their career. If I say we need to get revision 
two of the Marketo integration at the door. This one has to sync leads backwards or whatever, right? Surprisingly, the door is not being beaten down, right? However, oftentimes it's the Marketo things that actually are really important, which is really damn dull. And, and also weirdly, really easy. Like, isn't that like if you actually sit down to break down exactly what we have to do, it's not that technically difficult, but because everyone who does it, does it from a place of begrudgery or misalignment or whatever, it's really hard to get quality work done on dull problems. And it's really easy to get quality work done on exciting problems. And the implication of that is you're more likely to screw things up on something that will sound ridiculously embarrassing uh, in hindsight than you are on something really challenging and daunting, right? And I guess the advice on that one is just, I think about the boring stuff that you're just assuming will happen and will just get done well in your org, whether it's EPD or sales or anything. Think about the basic blocking and tackling that you just assume will be fine and easy. That's probably the stuff that will kill you. So that's one piece. Um, I'll, I'll give you two other ones. One is like, if you're trying to make a change about anything to do with the employees such that you need buy-in. So let's say, for example, you think, huh, we probably need middle managers. Or you might think, huh, we should probably do periodical compensation reviews as opposed to like whenever people ask. Or let's say something around perf or something around onboarding or staggering or anything like, uh, like the temptation is to try and try and hold one big messy all hands where you explain your thinking and you try and get everyone else to like to see the same problems that you see uh, coming down the tracks mm. so that they'll be like, oh, that doesn't make sense. So we're solving this problem that hasn't happened yet. Okay, great. And it never works. You get met with a lot of like skepticism. That's healthy skepticism. It's people saying like, I'll believe it when I see it, but I just don't see what the hell you're talking about here. The counterintuitive thing, if you like, um, is you're quite often, you're better off letting these things just break. Like when something's clearly broken, everyone point, looks at you and points you and says, what's the damn solution here? And you're like, oh, I, uh, I guess we need middle management or I guess we need an extra level. Maybe we should have titles. That's how we should distinguish the senior people from the junior. Oh, okay. But I think if you need buy-in, people won't buy the solution unless they've bought the problem. And you can go around selling problems or you can let the problem sell themselves. And mm -hmm. oftentimes let the problem sell itself and then people will beat your door down looking for a solution. So that's another one. And then maybe my last one is just one I've been reading about recently. I think it's a really good one. Is, um, I think this is from Shopify, the original idea, but it's called like let the pendulum swing. And I think we have definitely been guilty of this. And it was kind of refreshing to read. The idea of let the pendulum swing is that let's say you could focus on X or Y, two different things. Let's say bugs or quality, let's say feature A or feature B or whatever. The temptation is often because both are really important to try and like split the middle and sort of say like, hey, we'll we'll do a little bit on A and a little bit on B. Well, okay, let's move fast, but not too fast. Or like we'll work on tech debt, but not all of it or whatever. Right? So you end up giving this kind of nuanced, complex message to your company. That's really hard actually for a lot of folks to understand. The idea of let the pendulum swing is you're actually oftentimes better off doing a huge amount of one, then a huge amount of the other, then back to the first, then back to the second. And this could be like, we're going to ship, then work on quality, then ship, then work on quality, then ship. And the tax you pay for that approach is people be like, do you know what the hell you're doing? You seem to keep changing your mind. But actually there's a logic to it. There genuinely is, which is the effectiveness of a really clear message that's simple as in like, uh, you know, there's no nuance to it and, and universally understood as in everyone's on the same page is massive. The effectiveness of a nuanced message that requires interpretation by every individual can be really like null. It can just get really like washed out. So there is in a lot of cases, there's value to saying we should just do this thing and then we'll do the next thing. And I think that's um, being comfortable doing that versus feeling the pressure to have a grand plan that covers all scenarios. It, it's a it's a complex one, but I've, I've learned to kind of love the like this neuron stupidity of just letting the pendulum swing and saying, I know I said that was important last quarter, but 
but it's not important this quarter and that's okay you know there's there's some value to that or at least there's some valid scenarios where that definitely delivers a better outcome i have asked that question to end every episode and i have asked it in my personal life and i've never received such an extensive nuanced answer for uh counterintuitive company building truth so so thanks des and and, and we'll, we'll end there so thank you so much for being on no problem thank you for having me